This is God's word from Acts chapter 4. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So um, if you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, we've been uh, going through a series um, in the book of Acts, trying to see what it looks like to be a gospel-centered, spirit-empowered community on mission. And really, throughout the book of Acts, that's exactly what we see. We see the church forming um, for the very first time, this first um, model of the church, and we see them as a gospel-centered community. So everything they do, everything that they pray to God for, everything that they want is ultimately centered on the gospel. Every time you see a healing, Peter gets up and preaches um, the gospel, and they see hundreds or thousands of people come to know him. When they gather together, they gather to hear and live out the gospel. And they're spirit-empowered. None of this is actually... In fact, a lot of people suggest that instead of calling the book the Acts of the Apostles, they should call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because all that is happening is only happening because the Holy Spirit is giving them the power and the ability to do it. So if you weren't with us uh, two weeks ago, um, we were looking at Acts 3 and the first section of Acts 4, where Peter and uh, John meet a uh, beggar who is also lame, he, ca he can't walk, and they heal him. And immediately after healing him, Peter preaches. And Peter always preaches the least seeker-friendly sermons ever. He always says, this Jesus whom you killed, which is just, yeah, it's offensive. Um, and yet 5,000 people come to faith. Again, just a proof that this is only through the Holy Spirit that this can happen. So they heal him. Uh, Peter preaches. They see 5,000 people come to faith. And this makes the religious rulers there quite angry because they see their influence dwindling. They see people following these fishermen who hadn't spent years studying, who shouldn't be able to speak the, the way they do, and they recognize the only way that they can speak this way is because they spent time with Jesus. So this makes them angry. They see 5,000 people come to faith, which means 5,000 fewer people who are actually going to listen to what they say. And so they arrest them, but realize that really they can't keep them there because there's a 
5,000 people who are going to like form an angry mob and be quite angry if they, if they keep Peter and John. And they realize that what's happened is undeniable. This man, they knew this man, they knew this beggar who couldn't walk and yet now he's walking. Not only walking, but it says he's leaping. So what they do instead is they rough them up a little bit and they say, don't preach. You know, if, if you stop preaching, we'll leave you alone. But just stop preaching this Jesus that you keep talking about. And Peter, being the compliant, um, quiet one, effectively says no chance. You know, it's up to you to decide who, uh, whether we should obey you or obey God, but we will keep preaching and we can't do any different. We will keep preaching. And really, if you look at the history of the church from Acts all the way up until now, and until Jesus comes, we know it'll be this way. Christianity, God has been building his kingdom through people who have stood up against opposition. The people of God have always faced opposition in a variety of forms, but there has always been opposition. It all started with Jesus, Jesus who faced the greatest opposition anyone could ever face. The disciples followed after that, faced opposition again. Paul faced opposition. Stephen was killed for his faith. In more modern times, you can think of missionaries like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, who went to preach to an unreached tribe, and Jim Elliot, along with five friends of his, were killed. And countless others have had a similar story. God brings his kingdom through people standing up to opposition. And so if we're going to be effective as a gospel-centered, spirit-empowered community on mission, then we need to expect opposition and we need to know how to face it. And there is no better text to look at than this one if we're going to figure out how to face opposition. The text give us, gives us the perfect model of how to face opposition. And the first thing they do is they don't ask for anything, but they simply stand in awe of God's sovereignty. So in verse 23, when Peter and John, Peter and John have been roughed up a bit, they've said, we'll keep preaching and you can't do anything about it. You can kill us, but we'll be with Jesus then, so that's a win. Um, or you leave us alive and we'll keep preaching and 5,000 people come to faith. Um, so when they're released, they do the most counterintuitive thing. What I think I would have done from an earthly perspective, if I had just been kind of roughed up and told, don't preach anymore, I would have not gone to any Christians. I wouldn't, wouldn't have met with Christians because those are the people they're trying to attack. I would have hid. I would have hidden somewhere where they couldn't find me. And yet Peter and John go back to their community. They go back to their own, to their friends. And actually, if, if, if you look at the word that's used there, it can, it can mean friends, it can mean companion, it can mean, um, uh, it, it can mean a variety of things. But one thing it can mean is warrior companions. I love that. They go back to their warrior companions. They go back to the troops. It was foolish of them not to hide from an earthly perspective, but they knew, no, we need to go back to our own and we need to encourage them and we need to warn them of what's coming, but also encourage them through what God has done. And so they tell them, they tell them what's happened, they tell them 
um, what the Sadducees, what, 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 every, what all of their opposers said to them. And instead of hiding their community, it could have been the disciples, it could have been um, uh, a few people, it could have been all 5,000 plus, we don't know, could have been any number of people. But instead of hiding, they decide to obey God. And the way they do this is they turn to Him in prayer. They go back, first and foremost, to who God is. And they call Him the Sovereign God. The, the disciples. So, so the people, sorry, yeah, the, the people that Peter and John go back to when they pray, their prayer starts with Sovereign Lord. And what they're saying is, unlike these earthly rulers who are telling us to stop, you actually have authority. God actually has the right to command them. So instead of obeying these earthly rulers, they pray to their heavenly master for boldness to keep doing what he's asked them to do. And so they, they call him Sovereign Lord, and then they go on, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it. So you're the one who created everything. So you're the one who has authority everything over everything. You're the one who even created these people who are opposing us. So you're the one who has authority over them as well. They realize that during, in times of opposition, being reminded of who God is, puts everything into perspective. Being reminded of how powerful and eternal He is and how much authority He has over everything, being reminded that He has authority over whoever is opposing us because He created them, He can do anything with them He wants. Being reminded of how powerful and eternal He is reminds us of how weak and finite our opposition is. See, what the devil tries to do through opposition is make us believe that these people or that these things have a claim on us. If we go back to when Jesus was tempted, after the Spirit had descended on him at his baptism, the Spirit led him into the desert where he was tempted by the devil. And one of the temptations the devil um, uses is he brings, them, he brings him to a place where he could see all of the kingdoms of the earth and he says, I could give you all of this if you just bow down and worship me. You see, there's an easier way. You don't have to die on the cross. I'll give it to you right now. Or in the words of uh, the great prophet Bono, all of this could be yours. Just give me what I want and no one gets hurt. And yet, if you think about it for a second... He's trying to offer the God of the universe the kingdoms of the earth. What he's trying to do is say, I have a claim over you, I have authority over you, and I have authority over these kingdoms. You're below me, and I can give these things to you. And actually, he's talking to the very sovereign God of the universe who created these kingdoms and who created the devil himself. All of this I will give you. Well, it already belongs to me. You can't give me anything. The only reason the devil has any influence is because God, is because God 
permits him to. All of it ultimately belongs to God. And so this means, ultimately, no, no one who opposes us and none of the things that oppose us have any claim on us. God is the one who has a claim on us. He calls the shots. So to them, obeying what the courts had told them to do, obeying um, their command to not preach anymore makes no sense because God is the one who commands them. God is in charge of them. There was a story in the news very recently, and you, you can debate over the motives and the, the way that he went about it, but it was a, a, an American missionary called John Chow, um, a 26-year-old, and he um, had studied in a, in a Bible college and had trained for mission to go reach the most unreached people group in the world called the Sentinelese tribe. It's illegal to go near them. It's illegal to speak to them. It's illegal to go anywhere near their islands. People have tried to do it, and it never ends well. He felt that God was telling him, I need to reach these people. I need to preach the gospel to these people. I need to tell them that they are loved because, these, because the government might be telling me that I can't reach them, but God is telling me to reach them. God is the one who has a, he has a claim on these people that no one else does. He is in charge of these people and he wants them to hear that Jesus loves them. And so he went and he tried. Sadly, he was killed. But he knew that ultimately God's was the claim that he had to follow. So after they have acknowledged, right, God, you are in charge. You are the one who is in charge, so we're going to obey you because you created everything and you're in charge of everything. They move on to quoting Scripture. They, they allow Scripture to interpret what's going on in their lives. And they go back to Psalm 2. And so all of the Psalms, if you read them, all of them point to Jesus. But Psalm 2 is one of the most obvious ones. That point, the, the way that it points to Jesus is a lot more obvious than some of the others. And the question they're trying to answer is, okay, why is this happening why is everyone going against God? Why is everyone going against the sovereign God of the universe? And they, they quote the psalm, and it says, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? And in a sense, it's actually just a rhetorical question. It's, it's kind of like when someone asks a dumb question and you say, you kind of respond with, is the Pope Catholic? You're not actually trying to, you're not actually trying to, you're not asking them to impart knowledge. You know that the Pope is Catholic. It's just a rhetorical question. You think, that's a dumb question. Let me answer with another dumb question. And in a sense, that's what they're doing. They're saying, why are they plotting in vain? Why, why are they setting themselves against God? This is foolish. It's pointless. He always wins in the end, every time. If you actually move on in the psalm, they don't quote this bit, but if you move on, it actually says that God laughs at his enemies. It's not that when he faces, when his people face opposition, he gets up from his throne and thinks, right, how, how am I going to defeat these people? He sits back and laughs at them. He says he laughs at his enemies. He holds them in derision. So in a sense, this is 
a rhetorical question. They're, they're thinking, this is pointless that these people are opposing us because God is going to win in the end. In a sense, what they were trying to do, what the Sadducees were trying to do when they opposed them was say, don't preach because remember what we did to your Jesus? We can do that to you as well. Remember what happened to the other person that we opposed? Remember, remember how he was crucified? Well, let's just say the same could happen. That's the threat that they're trying to push. You know what we're capable of, so be careful. Watch yourselves. And yet the church remembers, well, no, remember what actually happened. Yes, you killed him. You thought you had won. For a second, the devil thought he had won. And yet three days later, he's alive. He wins. So why are you going against him? You thought you killed him, and he's alive. So he's the one we're going to follow. So in a sense... It's a rhetorical question. They, they know it's pointless. But at the same time, they actually provide an answer to why all of this opposition is happening. Jesus faced genuine opposition. Herod and Pilate, as they, as they say, went against him. The people of Israel went against Jesus. The Gentiles went, went against Jesus. Why? Well, if you look at verse 28, they actually provide an answer. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They answer the question, why do they plot in vain? Why are these people opposing us? Why were these people opposing Jesus? Why did Herod and Pilate and the people of Israel and the Gentiles kill Jesus? because God had planned it to happen that way. All that Christ went through, God was ultimately in charge of it. He wasn't surprised when Jesus was led to the cross. It was all part of his perfect plan. Jesus himself in John chapter 10 said, I lay down my life. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. All of his enemies were unwittingly doing exactly what God intended all along. And it was all to bring about his perfect plan. What they're reminding, what the church here, what the disciples here are reminding themselves of is the fact that God is sovereign even over their enemies, even over the opposition that they're facing. They're reminding themselves that God predestines and He uses suffering, especially the greatest suffering the world has ever known, which was Jesus's. And so they know that He is the one they need to follow, because even in their opposition, God is in charge. Whatever gets in the way of extending God's kingdom is ultimately going to be smashed to pieces because God wins in the end. And so if we think for us how this first bit applies, the first thing they do when facing opposition is they remind themselves of who God is. They remind themselves 
of who they worship and who is truly in charge. They remind themselves that God is in charge. God is sovereign over what's happening. God was sovereign over the entire course of history. He is sovereign over the suffering that Jesus went through. He's sovereign over the opposition that they're facing, and he will be sovereign for all eternity over every little thing. We should see this as an encouragement when we face opposition, and we will, we will, we, first we should get surprised, when we face opposition, we know that God is ultimately using it. When we go through times of suffering, when we go through trials, when we go through horrible times that don't make sense to us, we need to remember God has a purpose in it. When Jesus went through the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the universe, when he was being led to the cross, he knew that God had a purpose. And another thing we need to think of is what is it that stops us from sharing our faith? What are the things that oppose us? Big one for me would be my fear of people, of what they're going to think of me if I mention the name of Jesus. Because I find when you mention the name of Jesus, people tense up a little bit. It's like Jesus, you know, people just, ooh, don't mention that name. That's awkward. Is it that? Is it the fear of people that gets in your way? Every time you share your faith, does the devil try to remind you of your sin and try to remind, no, like you're not worthy to talk about faith. Look at your life. Well, what we can remind ourselves of here is that those things have no claim on us because ultimately God is the one who is in charge. God is bigger than all of the things that stop us from sharing our faith. God is bigger than all of our opposition. He wins in the end. So they remind themselves of who God is and then they allow that to inform what they pray for. If we go on to verse 29, the prayer kind of takes a turn. They stop, they stop talking about who God is, and they allow that to then inform what they're going to ask him for. And the first thing they ask him for is to is say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. And they stop there. They don't say, look upon their threats, judge them, smash them to pieces, get them out of our way. They just say, no, look upon their threats. You know what to do. You're the God of justice. We know that you bring justice in the end. We know that you are in charge. So look upon their threats. Look upon our enemies. Do what you will. That's up to you. We leave justice. We leave judgment up to you. And then they simply ask for boldness to keep doing what he has asked them to do. Look upon their threats. You do what you do but grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They want boldness to keep sharing the gospel. They've seen 5,000 people come to faith, even though there's opposition. So they just want more boldness. God, you do what you do. You, do, you bring justice about, but give us boldness to keep going. 
In, in the face of persecution, they could have prayed for it to all stop. They could have said, God, could you just bring our persecution to an end? No, they just pray for boldness. We want to be bold in the face of opposition to keep doing what you have asked us to do. If you go on the website of um, Open Doors, which is a, um, an organization that works with the persecuted church, they give prayer points for um, every country that, that, that they deal with. And I think it's, you, you often think, you often hear people say persecuted Christians never ask for their persecution to stop. It's not true, they do. But the first thing you usually see on the list is give us, pray for courage that we will keep going pray that we will keep seeing people come to faith. Now, we never wish for opposition. We don't take opposition lightly. We don't take persecution lightly. We don't wish it on anybody. But in the situations where it comes, where we do face persecution or we face difficulty in sharing our faith and speaking the truth, We follow their model, which is give us boldness to keep going. If we think about our missional living plans, these are, these are um, for those of you who aren't um, members here, the, in, in our um, foundation communities, we've established these missional living plans where we've listed people that we will pray for and that we will speak to. We will um, endeavor to, to um, ultimately, we want to see them come to faith. And if we're going to see that, we need boldness. I know I need boldness to speak to family members and to friends of mine who don't know Jesus. It's going to take a lot of boldness because I, have, I am terrified of what people will think. We need boldness. And as the prayer goes on, they ask, for, they ask God for something else. They say, give us boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. As they preach, as they are given boldness to keep speaking the word of God, they want God to do miraculous signs to prove who he is, to prove that the message of the gospel is true. You see, throughout the book of Acts, throughout the life of Jesus, throughout the entire Bible, miracles are not there to just be miracles in and of themselves. Jesus didn't heal people just to heal them. Peter and John didn't just didn't heal the beggar just so he could walk again. That wasn't ultimately what they were doing. What they ultimately wanted to do was to prove that the message that they were about to preach is true. Miracles ultimately point to who Jesus is, to how powerful he is, and to what he has done. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and gives them the miraculous, gives the disciples the miraculous ability to speak in different languages. Why? So that they can say, oh, I can speak Spanish now. Cool. No, so that they could preach the gospel and see the people whose language that was come to know him. 
They want God to perform miraculous acts to prove that their message is true, to prove that Jesus is truly God and that he truly saves. And in view of who God is, he's the sovereign creator of everything. They know he can do this. Stretch out your hand to heal. The same hands that predestined the suffering of Jesus and that brought about the greatest rescue in the world will ever see, stretch out your hand to heal and to comfort and to point people to who you are. And do this all through Jesus Christ for His glory, not our own. And as the prayer ends... God shows his sovereignty and he answers their prayer. In verse 31, it says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God shows his sovereignty over all creation again by making the room in which they were shake. He shows them a sign already that he's with them. And they get what they prayed for. They get boldness to speak the word of God. They don't stop at the fact that the room is shaking and think, wow, this is amazing. Let's just, let's stay here. No, that gives them boldness. That proves, yes, God is with us. God's spirit is in us. God's spirit is moving and God's spirit is going to do incredible things through us. We should pray that God would show his presence in miraculous ways. We should. Wouldn't it be amazing if tonight this room started shaking because God is answering our prayer? But ultimately, what it did was it gave them boldness to speak the word of God. We want God to do miraculous things. We believe he does miraculous things. We believe he still heals. We believe that he still gives us prophecies. We believe that he can do anything because we believe he is the sovereign creator. And yet we want these things to give us greater boldness to preach the gospel and a greater love for Jesus. The way that they get the boldness is through the second miracle there that Jesus, that God does. He doesn't just shake the room to prove, I'm here, I'm with you. He fills them with his spirit. Now, these were Christians who, were or, who already had the Holy Spirit in them. But he makes the Holy Spirit's presence more obvious. And he gives them the ability to do what God is calling them to do. He gives them that boldness through the Spirit filling them. And so if we are going to be at all effective in our ministry, if we're going to be a gospel-centered, Spirit-empowered community on mission, if we're going to be gospel-centered, Spirit-empowered Christians on mission, wherever we might be, what we need most is for the Spirit to fill us and to give us the boldness we need. When we face difficulty, whether it's people making fun of us because of our faith, losing our job because of our faith, 
facing physical danger because of our faith, we leave the justice to God and we pray that His Spirit would give us boldness to keep going because that's what He's asked us to do. He'll take care of justice, of turning people's hearts, of even giving us the words to speak. We need to simply remember who He is and ask for bold obedience. That itself is even a gift from God. And so as we come to a close, what the passage shows is complete dependence on who God is. Complete dependence on God to give everything we need. And He can because He's the one who commands the entire cosmos. From this passage, what does a gospel-centered, spirit-empowered community on mission look like? It looks like a community, it looks like individuals who rely on God's sovereignty, who rely on His justice, who are willing to suffer. They don't want to suffer, but they're willing to do it. Who desire to preach the gospel and who desire and trust that God will move miraculously. We remind ourselves that the troubles we face ultimately belong to God. And through all of our opposition, through our suffering, through whatever it is we face, we know that this sovereign God who planned all of it, who is so much more powerful than we could ever imagine, who is so much more mighty than we could have ever imagined, who is so much more perfect, holy than we could ever imagine. This same God is the one who is with us every second that we face opposition, who is with us every second and who gives us boldness and who says to us, as it says in Isaiah 41, do not fear. Although you're facing opposition, don't fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. Not your opposers. I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The hand that predestined it all. The hand that gives you boldness. The hand that heals. And the hand that ultimately will bring you home. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let's pray.